welcome to this week's edition of the Fat Tail Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman, and I am thrilled today to have on my buddy Chris Mayer uh, from over in the US. He's a fund manager of the Woodlock Family Capital Fund. He is also, or I should say, he was one of the best newsletter writers in the business, uh, talking about finance and investing and stocks for many, many years. And I was an avid reader of his material before he gave it away. He also wrote uh, several books uh, while he was writing his newsletters. One was Invest Like a Dealmaker. The other one was The World Right Side Up. And his last one was called 100 Baggers. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, in this podcast uh, alongside a bunch of other things. Uh, Chris is a classic value stock picker, uh, long-term investor. So uh, in the great tradition of guys like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch, 100 Baggers came about because of an earlier book that he read where the, a guy had looked at the, the best performing stocks. Uh, I think that book was written in the 70s. Chris decided to update that book to find the what linked the best performing stocks in the US market from the 60s to 2014 or whatever it was. And the number the companies that came up that had, had these monstrous returns wasn't particularly obvious that superficially there was nothing that linked them in terms of industry and that type of thing, but they did share common features and, and, and Chris uh, put, put those down in the book. Anyway, he's a fascinating guy. He reads a lot, uh, very astute observer of the markets. And so I thought we'd get him on, talk about his book, what he's up to these days and how he sees the world. Uh, so here he is, Chris Mayer. So Chris, can you tell us when did you officially become a fund manager? I officially became a fund manager January 2019. That's when the hedge fund opened. But before that, I was doing a little money management for the Bonner family on the side. So Was, was that just, part of the newsletter that you had done or was that? Right. Yeah, it was part of the newsletter. Then I had also worked with a family office a little bit behind the scenes. So oh, I didn't know that. But the reason I yeah. ask is that because you had written for Agora yeah. for many years, you, one of your tenets of your approach is to ignore ignore the market noise, a long-term holding, you take the rough with the smooth, you become a fund manager, COVID comes along and <laughs> smashes the market. What were you thinking You know when that started to rip through the markets at the time? Well, at the time, I have to be honest and say, I didn't think that it would be as long-lasting as it turned out to be. I remember thinking... Well, we went through SARS, we went through these other kind of you know, health scares before, and this will pass too. And by the summer, everybody will be flying again, and it'll be fine. It took a little while before the seriousness of it set in. And then I was thinking, wow, I have, I have a portfolio that's not well suited to post-COVID world. I had a couple of travel-related stocks. I had an oil, oil name that got crushed, but I kept that one. So... Yeah, I would say at first I was thinking it wouldn't be as bad and then slowly dawned on me how severe it would be and it did force force some changes. And so as you're going through that, what did you tell your investors? And were they banging on your door going, get us out, get us out? Or were, were they willing to go with you through that? Yeah, they were willing to go through it. Uh, in fact, I like to tell people that a testament to the partnership is that I had large net inflows in March of 2020. Really? So, yeah, people came out and bought more. So that was that was important. So uh, on one hand, how much? So on one hand, you've got your existing positions, you've got the crisis crumbling around you, and on the other hand, you're probably going, "Oh, everything that I was looking at is going on sale." Like, yeah. how did you balance those two two factors? Well, that's it. And I remember being pretty fully invested pretty quickly, uh, and then. You know, I remember the 2008 crisis and I remember what I told myself then um, because I handled 2008 crisis somewhat differently. I remember I bought stuff that just looked super cheap. I remember there were stocks that were trading for like net cash and, you know, very low PEs and, and, you know, that worked out. But looking back on it, I think the best thing to do would have been to buy the very best companies, you know, stuff that you can own for a long time. Because what happens is you buy that the kind of the, just the cheap stuff. And then it reverts and you get rid of it and you pay taxes. And then what do you do with it? 
Um, so I resolved that next time I saw a crisis like that, I would go to my shopping list of picking the, the very best companies that I'd always seem too expensive to buy. And I would go with those. So in March, uh, 2020, that's when I picked up both Heiko and Copart, two companies that I've admired for a long time were always very expensive. Even when I bought in March, 2020, they weren't, you know, statistically dirt cheap, but they were reasonable. And, uh, those, both those stocks are still in my portfolio today and probably will be for years to come. And so when you talk about March, I mean, at that stage, you wouldn't have known that was the bottom. Did you suspect that that it was getting close or you just were like, this is as good as I think I'm going to get. I'll just take it now. Yeah. I think more of the latter because it was, I mean, the market drop was so severe. So, so much, so fast. I mean, there's always a possibility to go lower. Right. So you never know when the bottom is exactly. Um, but that's when I would just have to rely on the ability to find more capital, to buy more stuff. If it, if it came, if it went a lot lower. So you you buy in, you're willing to hold, were there any ones, because you're a reluctant seller, I guess, were there any ones that you let go? Yeah, I had to let go of some things that uh, I think that COVID just changed, uh, changed their businesses. And that, uh, well, one example for would be Howard Hughes Corp, which, you know, wound up doing a financing deal near the bottom where they sold stock at 50 bucks a share. And um, you know, that business was impaired. That's what was we that, that was something to do with the airplanes. I remember you. Well, remember. Howard Hughes was a, a real estate company. Um, real estate had nothing to do with was, they owned real estate. <laughs> well, I mean, Howard Hughes had Howard Hughes, the man was had something. He to was, do there. he was a pilot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but this was like, you know, the perfect storm for that stock because they had real estate in, in Houston where you had oil, you know, getting crushed. Right. They had property in Hawaii where had, nobody was traveling anymore. They had property in New York where, you know, the complete shutdown there hurt. So they were really, you know, hurt bad. So there are a couple of changes like that that I had to make because the business was materially different and, you know, not the same. I'm just thinking, um, would that be something you would look at again? Like as COVID sure. fizzles sure. away, theoretically, some of those things uh, will come back, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Absolutely. I would. Yeah. Never say never. I mean, you always could open the door to get back in. If so what, like we, you mentioned oil there, we know it went negative. Like what made you hold on to that land in Texas that you have? Well, that one was actually uh, pretty easy to hold. I mean, I, I remember I tweeted at the time that, uh, that if oil stayed that low for any length of time, it was going to impair exploration budgets and so forth. And, and you would have a nice, strong rebound. So, but what made it easier to hold this particular one, which is Texas Pacific is that they had no debt and it's a royalty company. So expenses are very minimal. And uh, this is exactly the kind of company that can survive those tough bear markets. That's partly why I owned it. Um, it was that the underlying economics were so good and with no debt and very productive land in the Permian Basin, you know, it would come back. If, if, if the world needed oil at all, um, Texas Pacific would be fine. Well, now that would be loving life. Um, yes, now, now, now it's rebound. I now I kick myself that I wasn't more aggressive in buying more because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my average was something in the 600s and it got down to like 200 something. And then from that price, it went to 1600. <laughs> oh yeah it's it's sort yeah, of all a, this ha all this happened within within 12 months I mean, it's crazy incredible. isn't it um yeah. i'm just thinking like for your that's sort of a testament to perhaps the weakness and strength of your approach when you go look i'm a long-term investor there's going to be god knows what comes along mm -hmm. you get oil going negative and then you get it going to the highest price in 2000 since whatever it was 2008 in yeah. the space of two years yeah when you talk to your investors, do you talk about the markets? Obviously, you talk about the markets, but I mean, like, I know you, you mean have like a macro. Macro, yes. Yeah. Um, not generally. I do when something really significant happens. So I definitely did talk about it in March 2020. It was hard not to. And uh, I'm putting together my Q1 letter now, and I will talk a little bit about the market 
again, from a big picture standpoint, because again, we, we've seen some things that we haven't seen happen in a long time. Such uh, as? Well, such as uh, the 10-year treasury rate has increased uh, at a pace that we haven't seen since the third quarter of 1987. So it's been a long time since we had a bond route like we're having now. And is that, uh, is that because you're a discount sort of cash flow kind of guy looking at the that yeah. equation, as it were? Yeah, I think you know, the 10-year treasury is key rate. And the theory is that uh, when rates go up, that uh, valuations come down because they interest rates raise the discount at which you're discounting those future cash flows. So uh, it's going to affect the pricing of every asset. That's the theory. And in, in real world, it's more complicated than that because nothing, you just don't change one variable. You know, there's lots of other things happening at the same time. And so actually, if you look at uh, long-term history of interest rates and stock prices, they're not, there's no real clear correlation there. Um, it's not automatic that rates go up and stock prices go down because you could have, for example, rates going up while the economy is very strong. You could have earnings growth uh, making up for a lot of that slack. Um, so it's hard to say. I what- can't remember exactly, but I've got an article somewhere. And apparently in the 1950s, oh, I, can't, I, I would prefer to get this specific, but yeah, people believe the opposite. It was like rising rates meant inflation was up and dividends would go up and yeah <laughs> and now right. we all think the opposite <laughs> now we think now we think the opposite yeah. yeah well those things happen you know and i mean the other thing that happened that i will mention is that uh and this is sort of arbitrary of the calendar but it's still interesting that the market the s p 500 was down 10 percent in just 16 trading days the first 16 trading days of the year that was the fastest that uh, dropped to 10 percent to start a year ever so yeah that's kind of a little noteworthy thing to throw I mean, out this there year? as well yeah, this year. Well, it's been, a, I mean, we fell, yeah, 11% here in Australia as well, teeing off the, the US, which was mm-hmm. attributed at the time to rising interest rates. And, and um, inflation. Yeah, then we've got um, the Russia-Ukraine thing. So it's been turmoil. I want to read your Q1 letter. Can I get on the list? Sure, I'll send it to you. Yeah, cool, beauty. Because we yeah. don't get to read your stuff anymore as much because you used to write every week and um, right. we don't get that anymore. No, so, I just I just write my blog, and I know sometimes I can get a little lazy about that. I haven't posted anything in a while, but I'll write something soon. Well, that's the problem with blogging, isn't it? There's no there's no deadline. There's no publisher to no, make it. No deadline. deadline, exactly. You know, you know, it's just a pure. You just do it because you want to want to. So, with your fund, I don't think you. Well, I'm assuming you try not to play the quarterly game, right? Where you go, we do right. this every three months, and. The dance. In fact, I even tell my uh, I tell my investors that I'm not going to talk about performance on a quarterly basis, uh, or monthly basis. Um, I'll talk about the performance at the end of the year. So that's the only time that I really talk about it. Is that like a bit of a you're teeing off Warren Buffett there? I think who didn't he do when he first started his fund? He said like you'll only hear from me once a year. Once a year, and you can't take your money out. <laughs> uh, Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. Right. And then he also, then he had one investor who came because he eventually changed it. So he, he did semi-annually, but he had an investor eventually came to him and said something like, you know, once a year is a long time between drinks <laughs> and Buffett agreed. And he said, okay. And so he, he did make that concession, but you know, I write a quarterly letter. So they know every, and they know everything that's going on in the portfolio. I'm totally transparent about that. And, uh, I tell them things that are going on that I think that are important that affect the portfolio or that are in the portfolio. I tell them, you know, changes I've made or whatever, but I'm not going to talk, you know, I don't want to get in the habit of saying, Oh, well, you know, we're up 10% the first quarter or down 5%. And it doesn't really matter. I'll talk about the performance at the end of the year. Then I do a full review and say, you know, we were up whatever we were up last year and this was why, and this was the leaders and so on and so forth. But, so you're three years in, so 2019, as you said, you were, you were a self-managed investor previously. You wrote newsletters and you transitioned to doing a bit here and there. You're three years into your fund management, you know, official thing. Is there anything about it that has surprised you? I mean, I know you read like a gazillion books about fund management from other guys that did it. Is there anything yeah. that you found that you might have didn't expect? Yeah, I didn't expect to get as many investors as I have. Okay, that's I remember good. Uh, when I started started it, uh, you know, the Bonner family seeded the fund, and I asked them to seed it with an amount of money that I kind of 
backed into figuring out what I would need to kind of survive if it was just the Bonner family and me. <laughs> you know, I built it assuming I wouldn't get any of this possibility that I wouldn't get anybody. But uh, I did actually. And I had a lot of, uh, you know, loyal readers over the time who, yeah, who ponied up and, you know, some of them put in the money almost, you know, they didn't even need to know a lot of details. They, you know, they were in. And so that was very, that was a nice positive surprise. That must be uh, a, a, like a massive luxury. I can't think of too many. No, it was. That would, not a luxury. Oh, yes. I don't know what the right word is. But no, that is, I think it is a luxury because most people in my position, when they start a fund, they're going to have to spend probably, you know, half their time, at least marketing, you know, talking to investors and doing the things you have to do to raise capital. And I really have been lucky that way. I haven't done any of that. Uh, just beyond, you know, my Twitter account and, and writing my blog post, I haven't really done anything uh, as far as Which marketing is goes, like but pretty limited, really, in the scheme of marketing. Yeah, in the, <laughs> the scheme of things, it's very, very limited. Otherwise, I just, I spend my day reading and researching and, and uh, yeah, so that's been very, very good. That's, that's been something that's been good. But otherwise, I say like a lot of, th- a lot of just my day to day is not that different. I mean, when I wrote my newsletters, I was researching and talking to people and I do that now. Um, the difference is, yeah, I don't have deadlines uh, and uh, I don't have to come up with as many ideas. That's kind of nice. You know, I have a portfolio now. It's 10 names. That's it. And if I don't find anything for the rest of the year, that's the way it goes. It's just those 10. So, you know how it is when you're in the newsletter business, there's a lot of pressure to find new ideas. That's what people are paying you to do. So, that's one thing that's that's probably the biggest one of the biggest differences. And do you find obviously you've got time on your hands? You're watching the market. Is there any further temptation to fiddle things to get more active? To you know, I remember you wrote a piece once about I think boredom or something. It's like you know, don't come to the markets for excitement or whatever. Just <laughs> keep yeah, your that's it. Off that bloody handle. That's it. Cause you know, I, I have people say when they want to talk about the challenges of getting, you know, hundred baggers or long-term gains and they want to talk about the dramatic drawdowns that you go through and, you know, sort of the ups and downs of the journey. But I think just as difficult um, is those long stretches of boredom. Like I tell people that Berkshire Hathaway was the best performing stock in the study, but uh, it went through a seven year stretch where it went nowhere. So you can imagine holding onto a stock for seven years goes nowhere. That's hard. I mean, we think about all the other stocks you see going up and, and it's enormous pressure. So yeah, you have to be able to go through with the boredom. So to your question, uh, I, I will admit this, that, yeah, in the early going, I was a little more itchy about trying to maybe try to do some more things. And, um, but, I kind of settled down and, and uh, I, you know, I'm perfectly fine just sticking with the names we have and um, letting them play out as I see that they will and adding to them when I get chances to like earlier this year and, and, well, and not, not being tempted. I mean, that's important, not being tempted by trying to make trades or trying to peek around the corner and think you can out hustle everybody else. There's a guy I like, actually, I like, he writes a newsletter. It's called Richard Maybury. It's called the Early Warning Report. Mm-hmm. And he's been doing it for years, 30 years. And he almost never sells. And some of the gains he has made are just astronomical. But the 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 drawdowns and the turmoil that he's had to go through the whole time, I just wondered, in, like we're talking about how you've got this luxury of like people knowing you, they trust you with their money, you don't have to pander to like marketing. I know volatility is seen as a risk on Wall Street. So the guys fund managers have yeah. certain parameters about what they're allowed to, you know, draw down and that type of thing. Are you free of that sort of restriction as well? Are you sort of like, I'm invested in the company, not the stock. And, no. you know, we can ride this out, you know, because I've done the homework on it. Yes. And I think that comes down to who your partners are, who your investors are. I don't have any institutional money in my fund. All of them are, they're wealthy individuals and family. So it's the pressure that you're talking about comes from institutions. So if you have, you know, an endowment or 
something like that. They're, they're going to be much more, most of them, from what I understand, <laughs> they're going to be much more uh, active as far as gauging your performance and your volatility and that kind of thing. And so there are funds that, you know, cater to that. And, uh, you know, those are the long short funds that are doing a lot to manage volatility. And, you know, there are different markets for different approaches. My approach is just for people who want to have a core portfolio of 10 to 12 names of really good companies and, and want to let them run and see if we can get some of those big, big gains that I write about in that book. Well, we're talking about hundred baggers, we have, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, just one final thought on that idea. Um, so you've got your, do you take a, because I'm, I'm assuming most fund managers are hunting fees. They're hunting funds under management. I guess that's not the game you're playing or you're doing it to pay the business bills and what comes yeah, along I mean, is all good. No, there's a, there's a flat management fee that the, the, the fund has, you know, 75 basis points, pretty averaged or typical. And then there's a performance fee that over a hurdle. So pretty straight kind of hedge fund fair. Okay. But, you know, uh, different people have different motivations. So, yeah, I mean, if I had ambitions to run a, you know, $10 billion fund or something, I'd make a lot of money, but I don't have any, <laughs> I don't have any ambition to do that. Well, I was just thinking of. Uh, Unless I grow to that big, that'd be one thing. But, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk a hundred baggers. So you had already written a couple of books previous to this one. Um, yeah. Invest like a deal maker. I've read that one. Yeah. Uh, World right side up. Yeah. Uh, which came out about 2012 thereabouts. Yeah. I think from memory. And then was yeah, hundred baggers the next one? Yeah. 2015. So just for anyone who hasn't heard of it, just tell us the premise. You put a lot of money into the research and what were you looking for? For hundred baggers? Yes, but if that, yeah, yeah, hundred baggers. <laughs> yeah, uh, as opposed to the other ones. Yeah, so yeah, hundred baggers uh, came about when uh, there's an investor I learned a lot about from. His name is Chuck Acre, and he recommended a book called Hundred to One in the Stock Market, which I had never heard of at the time. And I've read lots of obscure investment books, but this one was by a guy named Thomas Phelps, and he it came out in 1972. And he studied all the stocks that had returned at least 100 to 1 from, I think, in his book was like 1932 or something like that to 1972 when the book came out. And he used it to draw a bunch of lessons as to what those, you know, what you could learn from those stocks. He found 365 stocks that did that. And that was his book. He wrote it. It was a very well-written book, I think, very quotable. He has kind of like a folksy way of, of writing. So I love that book and I would quote it in my newsletter. And, and then I had a reader uh, say to me once, you know, you should update it. And I was like, wow, that's a good idea. You know, I should update it. So um, yeah, I went to my publisher and said, Hey, what do you think about, you know, doing a hundred bagger study of our own? I think we'll call it hundred baggers and we'll update it. So we uh, got a database from, I think the earliest data we could get was 1962 to 2014 when the book ended, we came up with like 365 names, which is just, oddly enough, the same number that Phelps had in his, <laughs> in his book. And uh, then I just, we, you know, kind of poked around and see what kind of similarities all these things had in common. And that that's really what the book's about. I think Buffett was the top one, was he? Yep. And then was it Monster Inc., the drink? Well, I don't remember what was number two, but Berkshire was the best best performing and then uh yeah there were a whole bunch of names after that and they were and there was the railroad one there was right, it really uh, was a strange mix of companies that's there. right that's what that's what i remember that's what everybody remembers is that it really it's kind of a surprising list because it, i think most people would have guessed and have expected to be dominated by tech companies you know microsoft's and, and intel's of the world but it was really a diverse list like you mentioned the railroad one that stuck out as well to me and there are a lot of re relatively ordinary businesses on that list. So, would, Do you think it would look a lot different now with the tech run in the U.S. over the last seven years since the book came out? Yeah, I mean, there would be definitely some newer names in there, the companies, some of the tech names uh, who crossed 100 bagger threshold. Yeah, I think there would be a lot. There would be some more names in there for sure. Yeah. 
Well, I remember from the book, um, you called it the twin engines. I'm fairly sure you called it the twin engines, which was earnings growth and multiple expansion, right? That's what you have to get to get these monstrous rides. And I think the shortest one was like five years. uh, Yeah, it was Franklin Resources. It was like five. uh, Yeah, I mean, it makes it easier just on the math that if you can find one where you can buy, I mean, it's very, very rare. But if you can buy one, let's just say for 10 times earnings in the start and the trades for 40 times earnings the end, that's that's a big help to getting to 100 baggers, you know. <laughs> but yeah, those are hard to find. So, but but it, but it is we have to recognize that it has it, it has definitely been a factor. I was just thinking, um, like this gets back to your approach, though, that like if I'm correct in saying it was five years, so I think it was a minimum. You have to sit on your hands for that, and that was the best one you know, for years to, to, to get to ride these ones uh, and you'll get the big drawdowns along the way. So it, it's like the eternal hunt, but um, yeah, it's just, it, it involves, uh, I guess so many things coming together, having the right management team at the right time and then the market, you know, repricing the stock and then the earnings growing and. uh, Yeah. And the the other thing about it is that a lot of the hundred baggers though you had, you know, years to buy them. So it wasn't like you had to get it, you know, everything just had to line up perfectly right. Um, you know, you could have bought, I know, I don't remember the specific examples, but there were a number of stocks you could have paid the 52 week high year after year after year and still made hundred times your money if you had held it for, you know, 20 years from that point. So uh, for most of them, you do have a pretty wide window and, and some of them, it's not even like, uh, like you wouldn't be able to predict it. Those are the ones I was most interested in. You mentioned Monster, and that's one of the ones I always think of as being not exactly telegraphed, but you had a lot of time. Like there were three or four years where you could see in the numbers that it was growing, you know, very rapidly and had very high earnings growth and high returns on capital. And it was years, it was three or four years you had where you could have seen it all there and, and done the math and said, you know what, this one's going to get there. And you would, you could have bought it. Uh, well, so. th- that makes me think of the, the stock that I mentioned at the beginning. Is when your little mate who helped you write the book, he at the time it's probably looks when you pick up the book, he, like he's talking about Amazon, <laughs> like it's this sort of slightly sketchy idea. <laughs> and like you look at it today, you're like, dude, you're on the biggest winner of all time. Just buy the book. That's um, it. That's it. But uh, it's not yeah. obvious then. But he's sort of like, geez, they've got all these cash flows. But they pump it all into research and development. You don't see it come through. I think it's a buy. <laughs> so it just yep. shows you how, like even then, like it wasn't obvious that Amazon was going to become this monster that it, it no. that, that it, it seemed. Did. You remember, even at that time, it seemed like it was very expensive and you know whatever. Uh, it was funny because kind of one of the behind the scenes things on the on the book I'll tell you is uh, that analyst. His name was Thompson. He also looked uh, originally he was going to do a write up on uh, Valiant, which had, which was a hundred bagger, and because it had gotten there in a very short amount of time, it was interesting. And uh, he kind of started looking at Valiant, and then actually, you know, I remember, you know, he said he just couldn't really figure it out, and he wasn't really sure. You know, he didn't like it basically. So we switched and said, let's do Amazon. And boy, that was a good choice because Valiant, as you know, then became a huge, uh, I don't know, fraud is the right word. Maybe it is, but it blew up. And But I don't know and, that I do know that story, actually. Valiant. Yeah, yeah. So it vaguely have, rings we, a bell, but. Uh, yeah, that was well, the yeah. one that Bill Ackman was big into. The CEO was Mike Pearson. He was like celebrated for quite a while there. And then it all came undone. And yeah, it just uh, imploded. And now it's renamed and, and it's something else. But. Um, yeah, it was a spectacular blow up. Uh, I think it would have been great if we had, you know, dug in a little deeper and said, Hey, this one's got problems. You know, this is an example of one that made it, but it's got problems. And then it fell apart. That would have been really epic. But well, it just occurs to me now you're in a unique spot because you used to, when you did the newsletters and I've always been jealous of this, you got to fly all over the world, <laughs> <laughs> kicking over rocks in exotic places, but you're American. The U.S. has had a big run. I mean, today, where do you uh, would you be thinking to invest? Just in America, or do you oh, no. like the idea of kicking over those rocks again in Crete or wherever? Yeah, yeah, I love the idea of uh, 
you know, looking all over the world for ideas. So even today, the portfolios say half of it is outside the U.S. and half of it is in. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And uh, you now, like, I, now when I used to write the, the newsletters, you know, I was much more adventurous then. I would, you know, kick go off to Mongolia and you know go traipsing around mountains, Peru, and you know crazy stuff like that. I don't, I don't do that. But uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few. I think interesting areas overseas. I, but you know, when you're sort of thinking, I've of been looking thing. for a good Australian name for a while. You have to help me there. Oh well, um, <laughs> <laughs> the problem is none of them make any money. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. The problem, the problem is the ones that I like and I find that are just really, 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 really expensive. Well, the place, the place to be in the last two years with the lithium stocks, um, mm-hmm. which. You might have followed, but just to get back to your yeah. globe trotting. So you're running a fund in terms of sovereign risk. I mean, it's one thing to invest in Canada or Australia, New Zealand. Like, will you step into Mongolia? <laughs> you know, somewhere that's you know a higher no. risk. No, that's why I mean I'm not as adventurous as. So I, I'm as thinking I, maybe the UK. You've got some money in the UK. yeah the UK anywhere Western Europe would be fine. You know, Eastern Europe, Poland. Those markets are all fine. I, you know, I think Poland uh, might be a bit sketchy. <laughs> it's getting yeah. sketchier by the day. No, yeah. I do have a, I do have an, I do have a stock in Poland. That I like. Oh my god! <laughs> so you're, but, you're uh, all for NATO alliance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. A little, what? Little, to keeping an eye on what's going on over there on the board. Well, you know, um, I'm looking for great business models, and like I talk about in the book. The, if I had to boil it down to just like two things to really look for, it would be high return on capital and then the ability to reinvest and earn that high return again and again and again. You know, if you can find that, then it's just a matter of you know math. It's a matter of time. So, uh, yeah, I have one in Poland that I think fits the bill. But, you know, I would go, uh, you know, I've, I've looked in Japan. I haven't found anything there yet uh, because – Sometimes the problems are disclosures. So with Japan, you know, a lot, a lot of companies, they don't translate all of their filings in English. That's a hassle for me. I don't know if I want to get involved in having to get a translator. And, you know, there's well, issues with that. What about things like the U.S. bumping around against the yen? And do you worry about that stuff? Or Yes. I mean, that's something I have to think about, currency risk. So I, I did... Uh, I did find a stock in Russia that I kicked around for a while that I liked. Okay. Uh, but didn't buy because, you know, chiefly it was the currency. I remember looking at the Ruple and it was something like a four or five percent headwind. Or maybe it was more than that. Uh, I don't remember now, but it was a big head headwind against the dollar. And I was like, that's just too much because I don't hedge the currencies. I just kind of, you know, let them come out in the wash, so to speak. So there are some currencies that are better than others. I mean, like, uh, you know, the Swedish Kronar is relatively stable. The Polish Zloty has actually been relatively stable against the dollar for a long time. UK pound, obviously the Euro would be fine. But so, yeah, I have to think about that. It's yeah, just to finish on Poland, there's a guy called George Friedman, which you probably heard of the geopolitical guy who thinks Poland will be a very important country uh, going out over the, over the, he wrote that in 2008, but uh, so it's, Interesting to see uh, that story play out. Yeah. Um, the thing about you mentioned Russia, I know that Bill had some money in Russia for a while. Maybe he still yeah. did. Do you think yeah. that's the risk of what happened was something that you would have ent- ever entertained? I mean, they've gone to zero as far as I know, most foreign holdings of Russian stocks. Yes. Would, imagine you had more of that and you were, you were going about your day. This Ukraine thing has sort of flared up. I didn't expect it to happen. Would you have factored that into your analysis at the time? Yeah, I think I I think so. I mean, there are a couple of markets where I've had a hard time getting over the political risk on. Russia would be one of those. Uh, you know, China for me is another one where it's tough. But other people have different risk levels, so maybe they're you know they're okay. I mean, Bill, you're right. He had some uh, assets in Russia. I think he's written about it before. He has his dogs of the world portfolio that he writes about where he, you know, through the E3 ETFs, he buys like, uh, you know, the worst performing markets of the, of the previous year. And, yeah. 
And Russia was one of the ones, one of the dogs. But uh, sometimes the dogs do have fleas after all. The dogs do have fleas, yeah. Wow. And the Russia did pretty much zero out. Pretty much. I mean, he, even when you factor in the, not just the prices, but then the currency, the loss on the currency, it's devastating. Well, but I'm a bit of a coward when it comes to that, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm gonna stick to stable markets, you know, rule of law, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny. Um, just in terms of getting your ideas, then, like, what you don't tee off technical analysis, you don't really tee off macro themes. How do you get your ideas? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, so I have pretty good familiarity with a lot of different industries and I talk to a lot of people. I get ideas that way. Um, and I'm looking really at kind of re returns on capital these days. What, what kind of the underlying economics are, are interesting. Can you screen for those or do you literally dig through their accounts and do it yourself? You can screen, you can screen for those things. Uh, yeah, sure. They come up on, you know, if you, you can screen for like ROEs, ROAs, return on capital employed, their return on invested capital. There are different softwares that let you do that. Um, but is you that know, how you uh, do it? Is that you? Would you run a screen and go? Oh, I sort of know mm, that one. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would do it, but I mean, other people do it and come up with those kind of ideas. And uh, I've got most of my ideas either just reading or talking to somebody. Like I, I know a lot of other investors, and they know what I like and. It's I'm just like wondering, you become a, a fund manager. Kinda, yeah. why, why not do a newsletter? I mean, I'm sure that you would come up with more ideas. You know, you might have ones that you benchmark for your fund for whatever reason, but I'm sure that you have other ideas that people would willingly pay for. Is it? Are you tempted at all to go back to that writing life? Uh, well, I did it for so long. And uh, it was great fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it when I was doing it. But I don't know. I kind of feel like I don't know, I've kind of done that. And, the challenge is gone, uh, kind of. Kind of, yeah. And if I did it now, it would be almost, I don't know. For me, it's something I'd have to, like, throw my whole self back into. You know, I when I wrote my newsletter, I was thinking about it all the time. You know, like you said, I was traveling around the world, always looking for something interesting to write about or um, so that's a different mentality, a little bit different mentality, I think. And, um, yeah, this requires its own focus. So when you, when you had the newsletter and you were doing that, did you have young kids? Like, did you have to sort of leave them behind? Yeah, I did. Stomping around. I, I took some, sometimes they'd come with me. My kids traveled to some interesting places. They'd been to Nicaragua and Spain and other places. So yeah, they've, they've gotten to travel too. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. All right. So you, you're looking at this. So do you want to at least tell us a little bit about what might be in your Q1 letter? Uh, <laughs> you know, just your view of the world today, markets. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think I'm still, I'm, I'm still pretty optimistic about things. I, you know, the, I, one of the things I talk about in the letter is how common these kind of drawdowns are in the market. And uh, I think the average intra-year drawdown for the last, I forget, maybe 25 years has been something like 14% and something like 80% of those years ended up positive. So, uh, you know, I just kind of put some of this, what we've seen in perspective for, pe for people. It's funny what you say there. We have a stock out here, which you probably know called Rio Tinto, which is a British Aussie miner. Yeah. It got smashed last year. Uh -huh. And I, I went back over the last five or six years. So it went down like 30%. And I was amazed to find that it did it every year. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. this is normal. Right. That's and it. So I went, I went back and said, well, look, you know, it does this every year. Don't, don't be too worried about it. And by the way, the iron hall price is higher, still higher than uh, yeah, it has been I mean, in the last five years. Like it, odds on it will probably come back. I think that's anyway, true. I mean, that's, that's true of just stocks generally. I mean, they, they drop every year and it's kind of normal. I mean, one of the interesting <laughs> exercises to do also with your portfolio is just look at the high and the low, 52-week high and the low, and look at the difference between them. Just any year, go back multiple years. Um, it's quite wide. So it's part of 
being a public equity investor is that, that there's a lot of volatility from year to year. When you, you mentioned with your 100 baggers that theoretically you could buy at the 52-week high and still make money. Do you have do you still struggle with the idea of paying a high price for a stock? Uh, I did for a while. I don't have that problem anymore. Um, and I remember also I had a problem buying stocks when they were at their 50 week highs or near their 52 week highs. And that was another thing that opened my eyes with this hundred bagger study is that you find that those best stocks frequently spent much of their time near 52 week highs. I mean, it's almost by definition, right? If you're going to be one of the best performing stocks, you're, frequently butting up against 50 week high and making new highs all the time. And so by saying you're not going to buy stocks at their highs, you're just automatically disqualifying yourself from some of the best performers in the market. I know one like constellation software uh, has had a remarkable run where it's uh, up. It's not in the book because it wasn't a hundred bagger at the time. Plus it's Canadian. I was only doing us names, but it's up over hundred X now. And all during that time, I don't think it's had, any real painful drawdown. I forget the numbers now. I put that on Twitter a while ago. Somebody else found that out, but it was a re remarkable how of a little bit of it, it didn't have much of a draw in drawdown at any particular time. So sometimes you get those kind of names, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't worry about that now. I don't worry about, in fact, almost sometimes feel better about buying a stock when it's, uh, you know, making highs because things are working usually. And if it fits everything else, I'm not just buying it. The price is not, whether it's at 52 week high or not is really not relevant. It has to fit all these, has to meet all these other things first, but assuming it checks out. Yeah. I don't have any problem paying high prices. Well, I remember writing to you. Remember I wrote to you about the land lease things in the U S and, and the, the, the companies that oh, you might not remember actually, but the idea was that the company owns the land and they sell the house. Kind of. Yeah, And there was a little Aussie stock out here. So in 2020, it got smashed and it was like five bucks. And I went over it and I'm like, I like the guy. I like the business. I'm just not sure on the price. And da, 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 da. anyway, 80 months later, it's gone from five to 20. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, why did I worry so much about that? Little, uh, right. You know, right. We're going from five to four or what, you know, yeah, like you didn't thing, catch it like, right at the bottom. <laughs> You can obsess too much about the short term. Oh, yeah. I think when you find something like that, just go ahead and buy it. Buy a little bit of it. Buy some of it. And you can always, if you don't get it right and it goes, keeps going down, you can always buy more. But yeah, I, that's probably, uh, I would venture a lot of people probably have lost the most amount of money, potential money, just because uh, of things they looked at, wanted to buy, but didn't buy and then went nuts, you know? Yeah. And again, lithium was a good example of that here in Australia for, for us out here, like again, the, the, the run in those stocks has been so strong. The tricky part with them is most of them don't make money. Mm. It's just, it's just been in one way fueled right. by this macro sentiment of, you know, that the yeah. world has to go green and et cetera, et cetera. So I, you wonder how sustainable. Uh, yeah. Those are most more like trades kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than invest. Like I, in fact, I was speaking to a early resource explorer investor fund manager like you, and he's like, you know, they have to build these mines now with all their costs, you know, going through the roof, but the market doesn't seem to be worried about it yet. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, that, that's an important point though that you raise is that, you know, we're talking about a strategy that you can only do with certain kinds of stocks. You wouldn't necessarily take, some pre-revenue miner and, and make that, you know, your buy and hold forever. That's what, <laughs> right? That can go very wrong. Right. So it's a, it's a kick some qualitative judgment. I mean, it thinks you're going to sock away and hold forever. And I talk about this in the book, they should be things that, you know, good balance sheets, good management teams, make money, returns on capital. They are, they work as businesses today. Um, a lot of other businesses are trades there because they're too cyclical or like you say, they don't make money. I'm just thinking, we asked if you were going to do your newsletter again. Surely there's going to be another book down the line. Yeah. Which is memoirs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I would like to write something about, you know, my experience running Woodlock House, but there has to, I think there has to be more time under the. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we maybe have to write the memoirs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like, a, you know, a decade in, I can say, uh, you know. So what, uh, what, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you now? Uh, I'll be 50 this year. 50. So you're still a spring chicken compared to Buffett. <laughs> yeah. So, 
So is it conceivable that you would do this for 10, 20, 30 years and, and do sure. what he's done? Sure. Yep. I sometimes wonder about that because, uh, yeah, this is a business that you can do as long as you're compass mentis, you know, as long as you've got your marbles. Yeah. You know, and then there's plenty of precedent for that. Of course there's Buffett and Munger, but there has been others too. Irving Kahn, Phil Carey, and then lots of guys have managed their money you, well into their nineties. Do you think that's what kept them alive in part? They yeah. I think part, part of that might be because it kept, keeps them sharp, keeps them active, keeps them looking ahead and forward. And yeah, I definitely think that kept, kept them alive. I mean, what are they going to do otherwise? Yeah. That's right. You get bored. You sit around and you just kind of <laughs> decompose. I don't know what happens. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's right now I, I have a pretty good setup because uh, I've got a great group of partners. You know, like I said, they're all, they are all readers. So they're all people who know me and they know the style and they're on board. And so it's not like I, you know, face pressures from them when we have down quarters or something like that. Um, so yeah, I would, I would do it for a long time. I think that would be the only thing that might, you know, push me out of it would be that uh, if it became too much of a hassle managing other people's money, then just at some point you're just like, well, I'll just manage my own money. And forget it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Do the Jim Rogers sort of right, or Jim Rogers or Druck and Miller. There are a whole bunch of guys who've done that, right. Where they just have their own family office and then they just manage their own money. Is there something about having them? I'm just trying to, is there an upside to having clients that you get to meet interesting people or what's the good bit of having a client besides the fact that they help pay the bills? <laughs> right. Yeah. They help pay the bills. Uh, but yeah, I do. I, I do like talking to them. I mean, the partners I have, they're all very, been very successful people on their own right, uh, running businesses and things. So I've actually had instances where I've reached out to partners before asking them uh, questions or about if they know anybody in the industry or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I don't mind. I like, I like talking to them. I think it's a, so from that standpoint, yeah, it's a good group. And and they forward things to me too, that they come across that it's interesting or books that they've read or articles or so, um, yeah, that's positive. It's interesting. I was just, we had Matt McCall on a guy called Matt McCall who works with Stansbury now. And he said for 20 years, he ran his own fund or whatever. He always had these clients that whenever the market tanked, they'd ring him up and say, it's time to get out with this. They were like his contrarian indicator. Like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, when they rang me, it was like, it was time to buy. Do you have time a to buy? Do you have a client that's a bit more panicky than some of the rest? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I really don't. I don't have anybody do think, like that. Do you think when you have a, a when you got guys like say Bill, for example, he gives you X amount of dollars, he's not dependent on it. And therefore there's a level of relaxation that comes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a, that's a great point. And that's, that's another thing. Uh, Yeah. The partners I have, they're, you know, wealthy people and this is not like their entire nest egg. So they are, that makes you more relaxed too. For exactly that. You don't, you know, you're not looking to convert it to cash anytime. I I mean, I do my best to try to filter out people who, are thinking they're just going to try to invest for a year or two, you know, chase performance or something like that. I mean, I try to get people who buy into it and, and these are investors who maybe could hold it for at least five, maybe 10 years. Cause I don't have any lockups or anything in the fund. I didn't do that. I don't have, I know I don't lock up people's money. So I just, I thought I'd leave it to myself to be the filter and talking to people and making sure I had the right partners. And so far uh, been, been good at that. Would I'm just thinking from a, so if someone rang up and wanted to extract their money, then you'd have to sell some of your position down and, and that would If I'm fully invested, usually there's still there's some, some cash floating around in there. But uh, yeah, if I was fully invested, then I'd have to sell something, but I haven't had to do that. All right. Well, I'm just trying to uh, sum it all up. So we haven't really given this podcast a theme as such, but um from your perspective, I mean, you've got so much experience now. If someone's listening to this and they're coming to the market, what is there something that you can leave them with? I mean, mm-hmm. 100, say we've talked about your book, 100 Bags. That's a very lofty goal. <laughs> um, you can't expect that. Maybe. No, but it. I think I don't know, but I think it's good to have that lofty goal. You know, uh, 
So I guess you maybe kinda, perhaps you, kinda, you get you get what you're at you get what you ask for. You know, if you're gonna start and thinking you want five percent, that's not worth playing. You know, go ahead and think big. And if it doesn't happen, so you know, so what? Uh, you know, I think it, your kind of credos is like be selective. Yeah, patience uh, would be the would be the big thing. Patience. Be selective. Be patient. Um, everyone in the market is, you know, people are coming to it new. They're gonna think that something important happens every day and every week. And it really isn't the case, you know, the, the way the financial press reports news and the way people, I mean, the whole industry is geared toward making you do something transact. And you really, you know, have to push back against that and, and be patient. I mean, the best things to probably, you know, I remember the earliest things I read to cut my teeth on were Warren Buffett's letters always a good thing to read. I remember reading Peter Lynch's books. Those were two early influences. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I haven't done all of Buffett's letters, but I've done some of them. There's so many now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember. Peter yeah. Lynch. It's like 50 some, but I mean, the more recent ones are less interesting. He doesn't write as much anymore. And, um, but those earlier ones are, you learn a lot. And then there are books, you know, Lawrence Cunningham has put out books where he edits he like publishes some of the more interesting pieces in in one book. So those are always good. That's, those are good to read. There've been like four or five editions. I actually saw somebody put together all Jeff Bezos's letters. Have you ever d- d- read those? Uh, I've read, yeah, I haven't read all of them, but I've read a number of them. He writes an excellent letter. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Good letters. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we can leave it there. Uh, it's some, like your book is still available if they want to get it. Oh, but they're probably all still available, right? Um. Hundred Bagger is definitely still available on Amazon. Uh, the other first two, I think, are out of print, so they're used copies floating around. Yeah, but and I certainly the invest like a deal maker. If you're coming to a market, it's a good way to kick off. Uh, yeah, like if you haven't right. been like to securities analysis school or whatever. Right, right. It's kind of like a more survey of a lot of different ideas. Yeah. Uh, Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure, mate. And yeah, it's been fun talking to you. I love reading your stuff whenever it appears. And uh, so keep keep blogging away and tweeting out. I'll try my best.